Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, January 14th, 2022. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary. To our surprise, Noah Rothman back a day earlier than we thought. We thought he was going to be back next week, but here he is, Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hello. Happy to be back. Uh, uh, Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And joining us today, tech commentary columnist and longtime magazine editor, uh, savvy New York publishing guy, uh, James B. Meggs. Hi, Jim. Nice to be back. I uh, I, I bring up Jim's uh, long experience in, in magazines uh, because we are uh, sitting here reeling from the uh, unexpected, untimely, and tragic death of our longtime colleague, Terry Teachout, a commentaries critic at large, um, who uh, passed away uh, totally unexpectedly in his, in, in, in his sleep at 11 a.m. Uh, Thursday morning, um, just a few weeks shy of his 66th birthday. Terry uh, has been a monthly contributor to commentary for a quarter century, which makes him the most prolific contributor to the magazine in its 76-year history serving as its classical music and music critic for the first 13 years of his tenure as a monthly contributor. And then since my ascension as editor in 2009 as critic at large, writing essentially about the history of of American popular culture and uh, with a focus on the individuals um, who uh, performed it, wrote it, conceived it, created it and promulgated it. And, um, his uh, breadth of knowledge, his uh, incredibly capacious taste, um, his interest in uh, low, middle, and high, his interesting defense as an esthete of the uh, of the right that we should all have to enjoy uh, and and profit from and be illuminated by art without reference to our politics or, you know, the political concerns of the present moment. Um, uh, he was an, an extraordinary a person, a person of whom you, you will find. And if you go on to social media, you will find uh, it almost impossible to find anyone who has a bad word to say about Terry, uh, even Steve Martin uh, tweeted out something about how um uh, Terry was a, a wonderful writer and a, and, a, and a great critic, even though he disliked my stuff. But hey, sometimes I do as well, um, which was a very generous sentiment, but also expresses something very real about Terry that uh, and, and maybe the only person uh, to improve his reputation as a human being on social media, on Twitter. He was uh, sort of a very large hearted, generous, thoughtful um, and emotional presence on 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 Twitter for you know for basically since the beginning of its existence and one of the things that people were remarking on last night was just how uh, unspeakably rare it is to have somebody who's who whose presence in your Twitter feed was all positive uh, pretty much um, and he had a unique quality as a critic and that's of course what he was he was a he began his writing career as a as a uh, freelance critic for the Kansas City Star, writing about jazz mostly, but some classical. Then he came to New York and he 
got a job as an editor at Harper's and he then got a, a, a job as a um, as an editorial page writer at the New York Daily News where he started writing about classical music and then he started writing about classical music for commentary and then he became the theater critic of the Wall Street Journal. And um, most people who are critics, and I include myself in this category, um, salivate over the prospect of writing negative, negatively. It's easier to write negatively than positively. It is, uh, it, it, uh, you know, it gets your juices up. Uh, you, you know, it gets your, um, your phrase making uh, becomes all the, all the easier. Um, uh, and that was not how Terry viewed his, chosen profession he was not a cheerleader but he he did not he was not there looking for the negative and when he wrote as he did and you can go to commentary.org uh, or just go to google and 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 search terry teach out commentary and you can get to his author page hundreds and hundreds of pieces by terry in which what he sought to do was figure out what people were up to people from Robert Mitchum, to Charlie Chaplin, to Nat King Cole, to uh, Arnold Schoenberg, to, I don't know, I mean, I, it's immeasurable. Clark, last piece he wrote for us was about Clark Gable. He was working on a piece about Buster Keaton at the time of his death. He was just somebody who spent his life from modest circumstances, from a small town in Missouri, um, as a sort of, as an extraordinary cultural autodidact. Um, and he was a completist. He was one of these people who, you know, if he had one CD, he wanted all of them. If he if he heard one performance of a of a, you know, of an oboe concerto, he wanted to hear seven and then decide which one he thought was the best. That kind of thing. So he had that hunger for complete as a completist, and he um, and he just taught himself everything there was to know about classical music, everything there was to know about American theater, again, theater in general, even though that was something to which he came quite late um, in his uh, 40s. Um, you know, and then just a hunger, uh, hungry knowledge of, um, you know, of movies and uh, television he didn't know so well. But the, so what? I mean, everybody knew television up to a certain point because that was the, you know, that was the pop we marinated in as children but um that didn't matter he was he was easily the most uh what would you call it the most wide-ranging cultural writer of our time uh, it is an inestimable loss and um uh abe um you and i worked with him monthly you know basically for the last 13 years yeah, I you know one of the things that uh, came to mind when I heard that he that he had died was that um, a, a testament to how uh, beloved he was by readers is that you know just a slight behind the scenes uh, glimpse when I I go through reader letters every month to to work on the letters section um, there are always um, uh, a lot of letters for Terry. And sometimes the problem is you can't, they don't really make good uh, pieces for the letter section because they are simply, thank you again for publishing Terry Teach Out. I look forward to it every month. He's just a delight, which is a very sincere sentiment. And there's so much of that, but it doesn't make for a great letter because you want a sort of argument or a, you know, a, a something other than just um, a brief statement of praise. But yeah, no. And he was uh, he was a delight to work with as well, too. Um, in thinking about 
John, the things that he wrote, I think it's also important to mention that he covered some of the less um, sort of like uh, superstar, uh, you know, headline names. And, and some of those pieces, um, l- looking into what they got up to, um, I think are also really fascinating. In particular, he did one on Oscar Levant. Uh, I think it was in like uh, 2019 that I thought was just terrific. It was uh, Oscar Levant was this pianist, talk show guest, um, uh, movie actor, sidekick, um, memoir, memoirist, and a troubled guy. And uh, it was a very interesting piece about uh, someone that not a lot of people know about. And, and the piece just had, had a ton of, um, sort of empathy um, in it, which I think was, is also a, a characteristic of a lot of the, the pieces that Terry wrote um, about individuals. Um, also one about uh, Louis Jordan, uh, I think, which is a little, a little a while ago, maybe in like uh, 2012 or so, these uh, singer saxophonist who kind of uh, sort of found a branch, founded a branch of R&B sort of out of jazz. Um, really, you know, interesting little tributaries like that, that he could take you down because he had this encyclopedic knowledge. Right. I just want to read off, you know, just sort of over the last two years, just the 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 pieces that he wrote in commentary. Again, go to Google, type in commentary, Terry Teachout, you'll go to his author's page. That's the easiest way to do it. So uh, so uh, the, last month, um, the once and former king about Clark Gable. Do we really need movie theaters the month before classical music's missing color, which was a question of why there were so few black composers and whether black composers would bring black audiences into the, into classical music fandom. Uh, Some like it dark about film noir, a piece about the two female giants of the great American songbook, uh, Dorothy Fields and Carolyn Lee uh, Nelson, a piece about Nelson Riddle, who was Frank Sinatra's and then Linda Ronstadt's and Carly Simon's uh, orchestrator, the greatest orchestrator who ever lived. And what a weird, thing that is to say about anybody because it's such a strange profession nat king cole tom stopper john houston william walton uh the classical composer uh mike nichols um uh cole porter archie leach's greatest character which is about Cary grant hoagie carmichael the binding of isaac stern uh max steiner the man who made film music the littlest star which is about shirley temple um, and then a you know really powerful piece called Alfred Cortot, the pianist who sold his soul, about a Nazi uh, collaborator. Um, a uh, piece on Sondheim at ninety you could have read, you know, uh, before all the tributes to Sondheim uh, his passage. Um, a piece about the movie Chinatown. A piece about the Mankiewicz brothers. Uh, the Auden poem, Auden Hated, what Jerome Robbins knew that Leonard Bernstein didn't, a, ja- a piece on Django Reinhardt, a piece on uh, Betty Comden and Adolf Green, and a piece on Rock Hudson called The Sad Tale of Charlie Movie Star, um, and yes, the piece on Oscar Levant, which was called The Man Who Wasn't Gershwin. So it, this, is a, this is an extraordinary uh, the extraordinary range of uh, interest, knowledge, and authority that he brought to topics like this. Jim, I want you as a as a magazine editor of uh, many decades, and I want to uh, talk a little bit about what it was like to work with Terry and then ask you about your experience working with writers. Because when you have uh, somebody whom you slot in for a reliable column, a monthly column, uh, as is the case with you, Jim and, and, and Christine, um, 
one very important element of it is reliability. It's the most important element, oddly, aside from everything else, that um, columnists have to be reliable. Uh, newspaper columnists have to produce two or three pieces a week. A magazine columnist has to produce a piece a month. They can't say, oh, I can't do it this time. I don't just, I'm not inspired. I don't really feel it right now. Or they turn something in that isn't usable. So uh, Terry was incapable of writing uh, a piece that was not instantly publishable uh, without even changing a word. You could, you, could, you could take his stuff, put it into type, and run it. Um, but often, it was only 80% there. What he wrote would have been sufficient, but it was 80% of what he could do. And he and I developed such a shorthand that I could say to him, ah, this doesn't quite pop or, you know, this is kind of boring. Like you've mostly summarized this. You need to, what's the through theme? Like, and you didn't really deal with this subject or that subject. And he would instantly say, I see what you're saying. I got it. And then the next day, send in essentially a new piece. I mean, mostly what was there before, but often reorganized or, or, uh, or, or handled like that. Um, just, um, an extraordinary experience to work with somebody that self-confident that he could hear, you know, people, he wouldn't get his, you know, wouldn't get his, you know, his, uh, his backup. Um, and again, that, that speaks to a certain quality, both of character, both as a person and as a writer. You know, it's funny you say that, John, about how writers respond to editing, to criticism or suggestions. In my experience, I've always found that that weak or mediocre writers push back. You know, you say, well, I'm not sure this part really comes through. And they'll say, oh, no, it has to be like that. I tried other things. This is the only way that works. Whereas good writers, if you say, you know, I'm not sure you completely sold X point, they'll be like, oh, yeah, I know. I was worried about that, too. <laughs> Here, give it back to me. Let me fix it. They, they recognize even... Uh, you know, they're good enough to recognize when they haven't completely gotten the ball over the net. And uh, and I think looking at Terry's work, you know, obviously not only was he prolific and, and, and reliable, but just such a lovely writer. And as you say, when you try to focus on writing cultural commentary about things that you that you're writing about because they're good, because you like them. You want people to know about them. Uh, writing nice things, positive things about culture is very, very hard, especially things like uh, music. Music kind of exists to say things we can't say in words. And the way it moves us, the way it makes us feel are things that are somewhat out of reach or barely in reach of words. So a a writer who can capture that is just so special. I went back and looked at the piece you mentioned about Nelson Riddle, who kind of, who revived, uh, who revived Sinatra's career in the mid fifties with his orchestrations. And in the middle of that piece, he talks about one song on Sinatra's album, uh, Songs for Swinging Lovers in 1956, which I think was the year Terry was born. And it's got a Cole Porter song, um, I've Got You Under My Skin. And Teach Out goes on for uh, four paragraphs about the song. And he captures this amazing sense of, um, of 
how the orchestration works with the song. It's technical in some parts. I mean, he knows his, you know, what's six bars and what's 12 bars, but not so much that a non-musician wouldn't be able to follow it. But he he really gets the the excitement and the uh the, the the something magical about the um the way that that the the orchestration of that song puts it into a, a whole new category and that's that's something very special in a writer i have to say that was his quirky enthusiasm as a critic is the thing that will i mean critics in general nowadays as as, as john said earlier it's much easier just be cynical to be wry to be mean that's the easy part but he somehow never lost that quirky enthusiasm and he was always driven by that not by ideology not by theory not by any of the things that often in a in even a successful critic's career can bog them down and make them kind of boring over time I also want to add, I was, you know, chatting with some, some friends. Um, we were talking about sort of memories of Terry. I didn't know him personally all that well, but over the years I've had interactions with him in social settings and, you know, here and there in professional settings. But I have several friends, including one of our contributors, Naomi Riley, who said, you know, nobody appreciated how much he was a mentor to younger writers. When she was working on her first book, he gave her just tons of his time and energy and enthusiasm and support. And you will not meet an, a, a writer under the age of 45 who's anywhere near conservative uh, or and even non-conservative cultural criticism who wasn't impacted by him and really mentored by him. He was extremely generous about giving advice and, and critiquing work and doing it all just, again, with that quirky enthusiasm that brought a set of eyes to things that we thought we knew. Everyone's heard that Cole Porter song. You read Terry writing about it and suddenly you hear that song in a new way. And that really was such a gift, his generosity of spirit, both for his personal relationships with other writers and editors and just in his criticism in general. You know, there were, uh, it wasn't infrequent that he would write things and then I would have to go out and buy the the record he was talking about. Um, precisely because of that quality that, that Jim brings up, that he got you to sort of see things or hear things um, that, that you sort of didn't uh, grasp before. And now you had to go in and, and go down the rabbit hole and sort of chase after what he was talking about. And in particular, I remember he also had one great piece on George Zell, the conductor, uh, and why he was a, of the uh, Cleveland uh, Symphony Orchestra and why he was such a great interpreter of Mozart. Um, and I, I and it was it was a wonderful piece because it's sort of for, for those of you who aren't quite entirely sure what the conductor even does, it sort of demystified it. And uh, and I, I absolutely uh, rushed out to get uh, I mean, rushed out to get on iTunes, the Zell's uh, uh, Mozart uh, symphonies. And um, it has been a staple uh, for me since um, precisely because of what Terry wrote. I am such a cultural Philistine that. I, I read Terry's pieces mostly as, you know, it, it, exquisite dispatches from a universe that I own under, don't understand and probably will never understand. You might as well be writing about Ethiopian cuisine. It's academic to me. Interesting, but academic. <clears throat> when, I, when I really fell in love with Terry's writing, it was um, when he was talking about his experience with his wife's illness, Hillary's illness, um, which was incredibly vulnerable and so insightful about the human condition, which I suppose any art critic must be. Uh, and which to truly understand art must be really steeped in the the un, undescribable aspects of the human condition that are so emotional and so fraught. 
that they rarely get discussed, particularly in public forums. Um, and Terry's ex uh, essays on that experience, heartrending as they were, so vulnerable and, and so uh, compelling, um, were part of the reason why he was such a fascinating, accessible writer to people who are otherwise uninterested in cultural criticism. Okay, three three final points. Um, the first is that uh, Terry, who was from a small town in Missouri, as I said, was um, and covered the high watermarks of Western culture. Um, as I say, sort of came to criticism pretty much as a classical music critic, was writing very, very highbrow erudite stuff about classical music and ballet in commentary for you know a decade and a half before I, I, I took over. He was a champion of ordinary, everyday, small-town American life, and he did not believe that the life of the mind or the life of the cultural esthete or the life of the person who, you know, bathed in literature and, and music and, you know, the highest of the lively arts, that that life was a better life than the life lived by any ordinary person uh, in uh, what he called small town, you know, the, his, his hometown, his favorite play was our town uh, his favorite uh, theatrical production he covered was David uh, Comer's, uh, Comer's production of Our Town, uh, which uh, inaugurated in a suburban theater in Chicago in which the famous third act moment in Our Town when, uh, when the, uh, the, the ghost of Emily, uh, the character we followed who, who dies, uh, remembers just an ordinary morning uh, of her you know, in her life, any morning, any, any, just any morning. And um, our town famously staged uh, without scenery, without props, uh, with chairs and stuff like that. Uh, Cromer's great coup was that from the ceiling, there dropped down a set and it was a breakfast morning set, fully staged set with a, with bacon on a griddle and, you know, steam and you know, water running in a sink. And it just came down from the rafters, sat on the stage. And it was as though the memory itself was more real than the experience. You know, it was the most real thing. Um, and it was a great coup de theater. Many people think it was an extraordinary moment. Terry was its great exp expostulator and believed that it revealed an honest, core truth about about American life that he was a real champion of um, the the other thing about him is that he was a believer in honest sentiment he did not distrust sentiment he was himself quite sentimental in his own way and as Noah says wrote very frankly and openly about the emotional experience of dealing with um, his wife uh, Hillary who uh, had a pulmonary lung disease and basically spent almost a decade waiting uh, for a double lung transplant. And when she got it, she developed an infection and died in the hospital. So uh, this was a, this was a, an endless ordeal of Hillary's decline that was finally matched by the donor that she could have. And it just didn't, didn't go the way that anybody would have wanted it to go. And he was very open about that. And, and the, and the emotional impact of that on him, obviously, as Noah mentions, uh, this is reflected in Terry, the lyrics to Terry's favorite song, which was um, uh, Some Other Time, uh, which is from uh, On the Town, um, lyrics by uh, Betty Compton and Adolph Green, music by Leonard Bernstein. But you have to listen to the lyrics because 
this is why he loved it so much. So w- uh, this is a song being sung by three sailors and the girls that they meet on a 24 hour leave in New York in the middle of World War II. And the sailors are going back into battle. They are going, getting back on their ship and they are going into the North Atlantic, where, as we know, 50,000 people died uh, in the in the battle in the battle of the atlantic so they were and this this was written in the middle of the war in 1944 so where has the time all gone to haven't done half the things we want to oh well we'll catch up some other time this day was just a token too many words are still unspoken oh well we'll catch up some other time just when the fun is starting comes the time for parting but let's be glad for what we had and what's to come. There's so much more embracing still to be had, but time is racing. Oh, well, we'll catch up some other time. He, Terry almost died 15 years ago. He had a congestive heart failure. Uh, he was, uh, he, he, he did not take good personal care of himself, let's just say. And he was, I don't know, 52 or 51 or 52. And um, he basically died. I mean, he said they had to revive him. He had congestive heart failure. And um, it triggered something in him that is a very important lesson for us all, I think. Um, he looked at his life, he looked at where he was, he looked at what, what it was that he had wanted to do with his life, and he realized that time is not eternal, and that um, he did not want to have regrets. And so there were things he wanted to try. He wanted to try uh, to write plays, and he wrote two of them. He wanted to write opera libretti, and he wrote three of them. Um, he wrote several biographies more than he had written, but he had written a biography or two before. And then of course, just his, he directed, he directed his own play, Satchmo at the Waldorf. He seized life. And while he was taking care of Hillary, who was very, very sick and needed a lot of care, um, he seized life by the horns. He understood that there was a finite amount of time on this planet and that time, as the song says, time was wasting, and then he made the most of it. And God knows what he would have done with more time had he had the time, but it's something for us all to think about. Uh, you know, just when the fun's beginning comes the final inning. That's from some other time, his favorite song, and I guess kind of a, prof- a prophetic one. So we will miss him. Everybody who read him will miss him. Everybody who worked with him will miss him. And everybody who loved him will miss him. And uh, we will not be able to replace him in any way, shape, or form in the pages of commentary. And we won't even try. So thank you all for this. Um, thank you all for participating in this conversation. Uh, maybe it's a little hard now to uh, move on uh, to to, uh, to more um to more uh, less less eternal things um but uh jim meggs uh you you are here uh we always love to have you here but we're you're, you're here in part to talk about uh your uh, blockbuster piece in our current issue the february issue now available at commentary.org um about uh covid and the last two years you've written extensively about covid for the magazine since the since the pandemic began 
this is kind of the summa of your uh, of your COVID writing, um, and uh, uh, it is um, the, the pandemic public health disaster is the name of the piece, and uh, basically you decided you wanted to explain what went wrong and why and why it continued to go wrong and why it continues to go wrong and what it is that went wrong. <laughs> so uh, that's a very large uh, opening um, for you. But um, what would you say if you had to say there is a headline from the piece, not that there is a, uh, I think you, you, what you believe is that the public health uh, bureaucracy thinks something about uh, Americans uh, that is uh, not true, that is insulting, and that is, uh, frankly, uh, has made things worse and not better. Yeah, the, the thing we've been told from the start of this pandemic is trust the science, trust the experts. We've got the best public health bureaucracy in the world here in the U.S., and um, they would guide us through it. And how dare people not trust the experts? But what I've learned, and I didn't see this at the outset, but what I've learned watching this process over the last two years is that so much of what went wrong was due to the fact that they didn't trust us. Almost from the get-go, the CDC and the FDA were making decisions that were, were based in a sense of thinking that not only could they not trust ordinary citizens, but they couldn't even trust other healthcare institutions, scientists, researchers to, to do the right thing. We saw that right at the start with the failure of the, the whole testing process that the CDC developed. We really desperately needed good tests to see who had COVID. Those tests were developed quickly. Numerous institutions, both in the US and around the world, developed different kinds of, of COVID tests. It's not the hardest thing in the world to do. But the, the FDA only approved the test that was developed by the CDC, which as we all remember, wound up being A, in very short supply, and B, not working. They, they actually forbade other institutions from using tests that they developed, even in their own research. So we went for the first uh, couple of months of the, uh, the pandemic without any clear idea of who had it, how it was spreading. And, uh, you know, at the time people thought, okay, well, this is a, uh, this is a screw up, but, but hopefully this is just a, you know, it's a misstep and, and we'll, we'll do better now. But in fact, looking back, that misstep was kind of a template. And I think what it revealed was that the FDA and the CDC didn't trust other institutions, even these leading healthcare organizations and research centers. They didn't trust them to, um, to use their own tests, to have an, kind of an ad hoc decentralized approach to testing. Everything had to be, go through them, had to be managed by them. And, and then as, as we moved forward, we saw it wasn't just the health bureaucracy, it wasn't just the public health bureaucracy. It was our entire leadership class that had this syndrome that, as we've talked about on this podcast a number of times, this syndrome of what's known as elite panic in disaster research. I wrote about that 
fairly early in the pandemic in that piece about how people responded to the Alaska earthquake in 1964, when authorities were more worried about, you know, mobs of looters and panic public running around like crazy than they were about actually addressing the disaster, at least for, for a short time. When in fact, the people of Anchorage, Alaska got organized, they helped each other, they helped themselves, they volunteered, they went right to work trying to cope with this disaster. And that's often the norm, but authorities so often don't think that's going to happen. And so they focus on controlling the public, protecting, you know, making sure that, that we don't have panic and, and uh, crazy behavior. So we've totally seen that during this pandemic. You know, we have to, we have to have all kinds of restrictions and rules to keep people on the path that the authorities think they should be on. And we can't trust them to make their own decisions. And that's still going on today. You know, um, I, I, I shudder to use this analogy because of how, how because of the, the source of it. But Bill Cosby, excuse me, um, had a routine about going to the dentist. And he said, here's the thing about the dentist. The dentist, you're in the chair. And the dentist, uh, you, you're full of Novocaine and the dentist, uh, you're in the chair and the dentist has got to drill on your teeth. And then the dentist makes a mistake and it goes like this. And the dentist to cover his mistake says rinse. And then you Novocaine up say rinse, you know, and he's like rinse, go rinse. So you take the take the little cup and you try to get it in your mouth and it all dribbles down your lip and off your chin. And you say, what now? And the dentist says, rinse again. And there's a rinse again quality to this. Uh, you say not to wear a mask, then you say to wear masks. You say not to do this, then you say to do this. You say, uh, you know, we have to protect uh, we have to <laughs> we have to protect the elderly. And then you keep them in the nursing homes where they infect each other. You send them back to the nursing homes where they infect each other and die. Um, and that and that this all of this comes from the from the um, central need of authorities to speak with authority about things and control and contain your behavior and your reaction rather than altering the path as the path requires alteration because the facts change on the ground. I mean, Biden this week is talking about supplying people with better masks. It is 22 months into the pandemic. And by worse than April, that, it's almost a year after Joe Biden's 100 day masking challenge. The 100 day masking challenge first anniversary is on the 21st. To all right. who celebrate. And it, and, you know, God, we are going to have a parade down Fifth Avenue. That is absolutely <laughs> the case. These I want to bring an example. I want to bring an example of this. will be ready for public, you know, for public dispersal around March. This is where we are now. It's two years into the pandemic. Forty five million people have gotten COVID, according to testing numbers. You know, we have. And, and, and where are we going? You got to have better masks. I we try very hard to stay we away have monoclonal from antibodies. We have, we have, well, but, but John, we don't, we, we don't though. I mean, right, you know, right. we have all these treatments that monoclonal antibodies were approved under the Trump administration. 
And when the Biden folks came in, they could have said, top priority, let's make sure there's a big enough supply. If we have to spend federal dollars buying them and making sure that they can manufacture them fast enough, we'll do it. But they didn't do a lot of that stuff. You know, it's striking how many things we're hearing about now, you know, in December and January, where it's as if the, uh, the Biden administration has just realized that this is, a, this is, you know, we need more tests. We need this. We need that. It's like they, all the stuff they could have done when they came into office, but especially on the treatments, they've been extremely reluctant to make treatments a priority because the vaccines were supposed to do it all. While I was away, I tried very hard to stay away from the news, but I couldn't help but stumble across a piece in the Associated Press published on Wednesday, lamenting the, quote, gut, gut punch that has been delivered to public authorities and public health officials from the low rates of vaccination among children ages 5 to 11, despite the fact that they were approved two months ago. The article begins, quote, distrust information and delays because of the holidays and bad weather have combined to produce what authorities say are an alarmingly low rate of vaccination among children's age, age five to 11. Goes on to quote a bunch of public health officials who are just bereft over the fact that millions of vaccinated adults are choosing not to vaccinate their children. And it opens up obviously with this very self-soothing narrative about how clearly this is all a result of online conspiracy theories um, literally capturing the entire nation, apparently, even though you have places like deep blue uh, California that only has 19% of their children are vaccinated. And the fact of the matter is that this is a perfectly rational risk calculation taken by parents, not as a result of fears of the vaccine, but as a result of a, of an, a knowing exactly how this disease affects children. Bad outcomes are not impossible but only 0.6 of 100,000 people in this age group are hospitalized, according to the CDC, as of last week. Slightly higher for children under the age of four, but in states reporting, according to the American Association of Pediatrics, 0% to 0.02% of all children who contract COVID-19 succumb to it. Um, that's a compartmentalizable risk that anybody who navigates the world outside their doors understands how to navigate and compartmentalize. And what are the incentives associated with vaccination? Well, you reduce your risk associated with it, sure, but risks are very low. What are the social rewards? Next to nothing. If you live in a state or a state or a locale that masks their children in schools, vaccination rates have nothing to do with it. Social distancing, same thing. Vaccination rates have no effect, no incentive here whatsoever. So your, your risk calculation is essentially the same as you would make for flu or for putting your kids on the bus or letting them swim in the ocean. Those risks are compartmentalizable by rational people. And the public health apparatus is, in, is, is despairing their lack of influence, not the effects of this disease, but the fact that people aren't listening to them closely enough. I mean, I just wanna say, I think this, this ties into to Jim's basic point here, which is that when he talks about the, the distrust that the public health apparatus had for the American people, I think the uh, probably the most most damaging effect of that was the reciprocal distrust that that developed then uh, among the American people for the public health apparatus. So then so now they they sort of act surprised that um, people aren't if you don't listen to us, you're not trusting science. Um, meanwhile, they're not listening because 
the trust was not extended to them. Right. Well, I, I would add one. I would add one one point to that, which is, and I don't want to sound like deeply cold blooded about this, but um, we have Omicron. We know that Omicron's the the severity of Omicron is much less than 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 any of the other variants uh, is leading to way fewer hospitalizations. And because, you know, because this uh, COVID, this uh, COVID-19 seems to be uniquely protective of children in some weird way. If you wanted an object lesson, a longitudinal study in what happens, uh, you know, without, when we're at a moment where, where we do not have a deadly, deadly vaccine, a deadly, deadly version of the virus. You know, we have a version that makes people very, can make people pretty sick. Um, it is still the case. Gay Walensky, the head of the CDC, said this, said this yesterday or the day before. They still believe the overwhelming number of people who are dying from COVID, and that number is going up, by the way, uh, uh, as part of the two-week average, are still from Delta. They are all unvaccinated. They are all unvaccinated. There are almost no cases of deaths among the vaccinated uh, you know, from Delta or whatever is going on. You could have a real study here over the next two months of what happens for kids five to 11, vaxxed versus unvaxxed. A nation, you know, this is something that we've now come to depend on kind of bloodlessly on like the nation of Israel, right? Like basically we have all these health outcomes that we're following because there was essentially managed, practically mandatory vaccination in Israel. And that proved to be the Petri dish for the Pfizer vaccine and how it, how it would function. Well, here, you know, there is this question and people are going to make this choice about their kids that Noah's talking about. And, and because it's not a life or death set of circumstances, we will be able, to, we could actually look at this moment and say, this is an opportunity to judge health outcomes from the vaccine. But what if they don't come out the way people want them to in the sense that what they want is for people to say these vaccines are miracles, life-saving things, and 100% of the country should be taking them. They are miracles. They are life-saving. They are, they are risk-reducing. They are uh, intensity of disease-reducing. All of that. I had COVID. It was nothing to me, uh, be, and I'm sure it's because of the vaccine, right? So I had the Omicron variant, and it obviously it, it was like wasn't even a cold practically for me. Okay, some people it was a little worse, but that seems to be the case. This is like a like an ideal moment to have this test, you know, and 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 uh, and yet uh, it's going to step on the, uh, you know, this notion that if you say so, you obviously wouldn't say it in precisely that manner. But if you said, OK, everybody, you know, here we are and this is how it's going and we're going to look back in a couple of months and see what the numbers tell us about whether or not this is something that, say, kids five to eleven are going to need on an annual basis. Uh, or whatever, and 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 they don't want that. It's like they they didn't want to have different states with different policies, where we could then judge whether the policies were effective or ineffective. That's the glory of the federal system of the United States, is that states do things differently, and then we can say, you know what, the way New York does this is terrible, but the way Florida does it is good, or vice versa. And therefore, New York can amend its policies and follow Florida's, you know, if we're in a less politicized atmosphere or, let, you know, whatever you want to call it, cultural, cultural conflict atmosphere. And that politicized atmosphere is part of the reason this trust got destroyed. It's not just the public health 
officials. It's also the way the press dealt with news about uh, about the pandemic all the way through. There were plenty of good journalists doing good work. In fact, some journalists did a much better job than the public health officials at dealing with some of the nuances or exposing the idea that that the virus was actually airborne when the public health establishment was poo-pooing that notion and giving us a false sense of security on that front. But you mentioned the way that different states could be seen as experiments in public health management, but the press was so politicized in how they covered it that they did this kind of rampant selection bias. Anytime things were bad in Florida, we heard all about it. But we would never hear about the fact that maybe Southern California's numbers were just as bad, but that didn't get mentioned. So the average person thought that, you know, that these crazy people in Florida were um, were dying in droves. And so therefore, the kind of information that would have been useful didn't get didn't get spread. And then the public also saw both public health officials and the media turn on a dime after the George Floyd murder and the same people who've been putting up pictures of, oh my God, there's 40 people on a beach in Florida. What are, what are they crazy? And all of a sudden it's like everybody out in the streets start shouting and chanting together because, you know, white supremacy is a public health emergency. And that really, that was something that I think almost anyone who was paying attention realized, wow, they just say whatever kind of suits their, uh, their priorities at a given moment. And they don't actually really know what's safe or they're not saying what they believe. And I think we saw this steady drip, drip, drip from that point on of, I, it really began before that, but that really forced it to the public's attention that you know after a year or so, People wouldn't really believe anything they said, even when it was right, you know, even when it was correct about the efficacies of vaccines or other things. People were just they were they were fed up. They were distrustful and they turned to other sources of information, some of which were legit and some of which were um, were very much not legit. That is, that's the point about these child numbers, though, is that it's not as though they're, this, the, the opening to this AP thing is just nonsense and, and, and obnoxious in a self-flattering way where they position themselves as this Olympian observer of uh, events on the ground that they are, they are, you know, from their enlightened remove, just completely immune to as though they don't participate in politics themselves. The notion here that they're attributing uh, the, this, ra- as I said, a perfectly rational assessment of relative risk as being attributed to misinformation and disinformation and just general lethargy. I mean, it's, it's, it's the sort of thing that absolves them of any sort of complicity in this condition and also renders their subjects sort of inhuman and uh, dismissible and ignorable and ignorant. Uh, And it's, it's, it's contributing to a psychological condition in the people that we're talking about right here that is driving them absolutely insane. They're grasping for agency and control that is increasingly elusive. And their response to it is to grip grip harder and to apply more control to the only people who are still listening to them, which is uh, contributing again to this this cycle of just everybody driving themselves crazy, except for the people who've tuned out. Um, I I wanted to read, um, uh, and this can move us a little bit into politics uh, before we close. Uh, Celine Gounder uh, at uh, 
uh, New York uh, doctor, uh, epidemiologist, part of the Biden COVID transition team and a big hawk on COVID uh, responded um, uh, yesterday to the news that the Supreme Court had partially upheld and partially blocked the implementation of Biden's vaccine mandate policies, right? So um, uh, this split the baby decision you know, plainly said, no, uh, the administration has no authority to use the Occupational Self and Safety Administration uh, to impose rules on 80 million, uh, on employers that control 80 million people. Uh, This is not an act of Congress. Congress did not specify this as a principle. It does not have the power and authority to do this. However, uh, HHS does have the right um, to impose a vaccine mandate on institutions and people who receive federal funding, Medicare and Medicaid, um, and uh, staff working in facilities that have received that money. And uh, it's because uh, federal contracts then contain the right of the feds to say you have to do X, Y, and Z. Uh, Conservatives on the court uh, did not accept this, the logic of this, except for Roberts and uh, Robertson Kavanaugh, uh, who uh, crossed over to vote for uh, the uh, HHS uh, Medicare, Medicaid, healthcare worker vaccine mandate. Okay, so uh, that that was the news. And basically, uh, you know, you're talking about Biden's swing for the fences was that everybody there was going to be a private sector mandate on vaccination. Uh, that is now over with. The minute that it, he came out with it, I think a lot of us said, "Oh, come on, this will—you know, this is this will never pass constitutional muster." What? How on earth can an agency? Can you empower an agency to rule over, uh, you know, the relations between private employers and their employees? And if a private employer wants to impose a vaccine mandate, he can do so, or it, it can do so, but. Uh, you know, making it a, a part of a rule is, you know, is, is just a constitutional overreach of unbelievable proportions. Uh, and Biden, therefore, had a terrible day. He had, other, he had a terrible day for other reasons you can get to. Um, uh, and you can say that, you know, because, of course, the healthcare mandate makes a lot more, also makes a lot more logical sense since you're talking about frontline workers who, you know, shouldn't be infected with the, with the virus while they're treating other people, uh, even though that too has caused massive shortages in the healthcare uh, industry for healthcare workers, support staff, and all of that, nonetheless. Okay. So Gounder goes on to say, as a result of the blockage of the OSHA mandate, it is now highly unlikely that the U.S. will hit the 85 to 90% of Americans vaccinated mark to get to the other side of the pandemic. Oh, so now it's 85 to 90%, is it? When did that happen? Did a memo go out from somebody who did the epidemiological math and is now determined that it's not going to work to achieve herd immunity until we hit 87.5%? I never heard that. Nobody ever told me that. This is the first I've heard of it in her stupid tweet. And it seems to be there solely and exclusively to lay the blame at the feet of the conservative justice of the Supreme Court that somehow we're not going to end the pandemic using the vaccine, even though we are. 85%, I'm sorry, 85% of 12 and up are fully vaccinated. 
fully vaccinated, not even just one dose, according to the New York Times. And again, in this AP piece on the children thing, there's this quote from it's a not, th- wait. according to the New York Times, 12 and up, 85 percent. Oh, as at least one dose. I'm sorry. You're no, right. one, dose, that's one dose. One dose. How dare you? As a, one right. dose is nothing. <laughs> nothing. One dose is bupkis. Sorry. Yeah, it's worthless. One dose only gets you 83 percent protection. Now let's do the. Let's that's one of, the, the one of these backwards. pediatricians who's quoted in this AP piece says, you know, until we get, you know, sat- full saturation among children, young children, we can't render this thing a common cold, which we could. Right now we could eliminate severe disease. Quote, severe disease could be eliminated if we were to have basically universal vaccination among children, universal meaning roughly nine out of ten. But the article also admits that severe disease among children is a negligible risk. It is the common cold for most young children pre-adolescents. But this is why I think the evasiveness of the messaging, to go back to what, what Jim was saying earlier, and John, to your point about why can't they not just say, change uh, course here. I have to bring up, you know, our vice president when when asked directly in an interview the other day about just that, like, what are we doing? What's going on with COVID? What's the administration's position now said? And I quote, it is time for us to do what we have been doing. And that time is every day. You know, cue the inspiring violin swell. Like, what the hell does that even mean? It is so bonkers when she's when when she in particular. But this is true of a lot of people in this administration. When they are asked a direct question about policymaking and the need to shift the tone, the rhetoric, and the decision making around COVID because of the change in circumstances and the mildness of the virus and the increase in vaccination rates, they can't bring themselves to just say it. And it's weird because remember, get vaccinated, you can take your mask off. Biden, remember that guy? Remember, remember all the, the promotional ads of him walking around? Now he wears a mask outside alone on the beach. Like it's just, it's baffling if you're just looking at this as an average news consumer and the optics of how this administration has behaved, it's it's completely schizophrenic. You cannot find a through line that's that's consistent except for baseline anxiety and fear. Can I also talk about uh, Kamala Antoinette? Because we have this amazing quote from yesterday. There was an interview with her with NBC News and she was asked uh, what she would say to Americans who can't find a COVID test, a home, you know, an antigen, home antigen test. Google it is what she said. Do Google. Just I mean, do Google. I mean, I mean really, <laughs> she said, if you want to fi- figure out how to get across town to some restaurant you heard is great, you usually do Google to figure out where it is. This is the vice president of the United States. There is a test shortage in the United States. Her own boss talks daily about how sad he is about the test and how he is going to alleviate the test shortage. And she's saying, you know, the people have no bread is what people are is what. And she's saying. Get, you know, why call Uber Eats? Don't Um, dare accuse her of not reading the briefing materials. Google it. And find out that every CVS in your neighborhood and, you know, every CVS within 10 miles doesn't have any left. Let them do Google really should become a tagline for her if she tries to run for president. <laughs> There's I, no I, better I, example of the decline of American comedy writing than the failure to lampoon this objectively hilarious figure who everything that comes out of her mouth is just a, the most banal recitation of the premise that she was just asked. Like, ask her, you know, it's amazing what Americans are doing in space, right? To, to which she responds, space is so big and so full of space. It's the final frontier, Noah. 
really no, is. No, that would have much that. more at substance. That, that's a phrase. At least, at least she, you that know, would she have far more substance. If okay, she'd yeah. said that, she wouldn't have sounded like a, you know, like a ninth grader, you know, high on shrooms, you know, <laughs> the, the which time. is what she sounds like. What was the other one? She was asked what it was time to for for the administration to be doing in response to their failures associated with failing to mitigate the spread of the disease, and she said, "Time is to now is to do what we've been doing." Right, something along yeah. those lines. It was yeah, that was the quote I just read. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. It was another it one. Is, it was an early oh, yeah, one. She had a yeah. different one. There was too. an early so, one. What somebody, should we do? We should do what we've been doing. Really? Oh, that you just said you failed. I, what, why? Why should you keep doing that that way? Somebody on Twitter made the great point that every time she's asked a tough question, she she answers kind of like the high school student asked to you know to stand up in class and and describe a book that you were supposed to read that that she hasn't read and you know or, or like a you know That's or perfect. maybe or yeah. maybe like a, a beauty pageant uh person who's trying to tip you know tiptoe through a question without knowing anything and it's the it. mock it's the mock profundity that she brings right. to it because it's not just it's not john said a very matter of factly time to keep doing what we've been doing that would that would actually project confidence what she actually says is it's time for us to do what what we've been doing and that time is every day every day right. it is time for us to agree that there are things and tools that are available to us to slow this thing down it's good beautiful. luck america it's beautiful but it's you, beautiful you know, it's not to get too uh, like psychological about it but it's also it's as if she's got like a choking problem now like if she were on a team They'd be bringing in like the team shrink. She's got the yips. She's yeah, exactly. Exactly yips. right. It's like when, when uh, who was it on the Met? When Wally Backman couldn't throw the ball with the catcher who couldn't throw uh, Mackie Sasser couldn't throw the the ball back to the pitcher and had to leave. Yeah, it, it's a that's yeah, precisely right. that. Yeah, so, so, uh, that uh, you know, we're supposed to celebrate Simone Biles for recognizing, right, that she got the twisties. She's got the twisties, but you just ask her a question like, what are you going to do about COVID? Well, all she has pit. to say is, yeah. we're going to make more masks. We're going to have all these uh, therapies coming down. Well, what do you say to Americans? Help is on the way. I mean, it's like cliche 101, right? We're here. We're helping. We're meet 24 hours a day. We will not rest until we find the real killer, you know, but, you know, you can't all, even do that. But all these failures um, show how little they were paying attention to this from the start. The fact that, you know, Biden was surprised that we needed more tests. They were surprised that a new variant, that new variants were coming down the pike. Everyone knew, knew new variants were coming down the pike. They they really thought when they came in, they looked at the issue politically. They said they thought they could make hay from the success of the vaccines that, you know, everybody blames the Trump administration for being over optimistic, saying, oh, it was just going to fade away. And that was a huge mistake to say that. But the Biden administration was just as over-optimistic. They thought that they could put the end of COVID kind of in their hip pocket and move ahead to other much more important transformational items like Build Back Better. So it did catch them by surprise. And there's no excuse for that. And then I think that now they're trying to talk like they 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 were on top of this the whole time, but clearly they weren't. And even the, the vice president doesn't even seem to be you know, reading the newspaper <laughs> to know what's going on with the test shortage. Uh, you know, this, I think, is a very crucial point. And we talked about it earlier this week. 
on the podcast that Biden was elected in the middle of um, of, a, of a of a signal signature and unprecedented kind of crisis. What you would expect from the president who was elected in the middle of a signature crisis is that his presidency would be dedicated to that crisis and that everything that he did would be viewed through the lens and filter of how is this going to get us beyond COVID? Okay. Not how do we live with COVID? Not how do we help people who are troubled by COVID now, but does this policy, this meeting that we're having today about a problem in Micronesia, is there a COVID element to the problem in Micronesia? If I'm going to have a meeting about a bridge in, you know, Kentucky, uh, is there something about that bridge in Kentucky that will help alleviate the problem with COVID or get us beyond COVID? That's what you do in a crisis. What you do in a crisis is triage. You figure out what is the most important thing to focus on and you, and you eliminate the other distractions. And they weren't interested in COVID. That is the fundamental truth. They were interested in bringing about progressive government in the United States and they used COVID they thought they could use COVID as a lever to achieve their larger aim, but there can be no larger aim as we've learned because they took, not only did they take their eye on the ball, but the policies that they put in place that they said were for COVID have made things worse. They've made inflation worse. They've made job creation worse. They've made job mobility. They've created a weird situation in which we have job mobility, which is out mobility. It is people leaving the workforce because government is giving them sufficient amounts of money to stay unemployed. Uh, and, and, and while we, uh, we think job mobility is a great thing, quitting your job and then going to no job is not a great thing. Um, and, was, and, and so you have this weird circumstance in which it would be as though Churchill got into power after saying, you know, Chamberlain didn't know what the hell he was doing. And, you know, this is when it's like, okay, I was wrong. I was wrong. I mishandled it. I, you know, I let, I let, I, I said that, um, you know, basically they could take the Sudetenland. And that was obviously, I still, I was wrong. I'm giving up power to you. You are now the prime minister. And then Churchill comes in and says, I need to crush this rebellion in India. That's what I really need to do. That the, you know, things are going bad in India for the empire. We really need to go and deal with that. Or, you know, I'm gonna, uh, you know, whatever. I whatever it is. Churchill didn't care about anything except World War II. Now, granted, it was an existential threat to England, literally, like England. You know, as as the blood, sweat, and tears speech said. You know, it's like. England could go away. Nazis could take over England. There would be no more England. But, you know, we'll, we'll fight until we die, if that's the case. But, I mean, it's, it's that level of um, political fecklessness um, and, you know, obtuseness, fecklessness. And now we and, and the chickens are coming home to roost. This is the final thing I wanted to talk about. Biden yesterday. Oh, go ahead, Joe. No, well, I just want to say it's not just COVID. We're going to see this exact same problem play out with everything that has the name climate attached to it. You know, as we saw in the Build Back Better, um, if you looked at the details of that, everything was justified in terms of fixing the climate crisis. But it's almost as if they said, look, we're going to be spending trillions on climate. Let's make sure we use a lot of it to achieve all these other goals of ours. And when you actually start digging down 
uh, you realize that the, they're not even that focused on climate. They're just focused on using all that money justified by the climate concern to fund unions and, and a million other things that are, are priorities of theirs. So this is a, uh, I think, a, a syndrome on the progressive left that we really have to watch out for. Even when they say they're focused on a problem, they're not actually focused on the problem. Fair enough. But I did want to talk about, you know, sort of this week and the madness of this week and what it what it portends about American politics in the next two or three years, because, you know, like it or not, Biden is going to be president for the next two or three years or, you know, should something tragic happen, Kamala Harris will be president. It'll be Biden and Harris. And look what they're doing. So Tuesday, Biden gives the speech in which he says, if you don't support these two bills and and killing the filibuster on voting rights, you are. Bull Connor, Jefferson Davis, and George Wallace. And Thursday, Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin say, we are not getting rid of the filibuster. <laughs> and the New York Times and the Washington Post say, Biden's hopes of getting voting rights through were dealt a fatal blow. Very disappointing, crushing blow. I knew that he wasn't getting it through. I mean, what 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 am I crazy? Like I even wrote a column an hour after Biden's speech in which I said he is pushing through an agenda that he has absolutely no hope of success on. They already said they're not giving up on the filibuster. And if they didn't say it, Mark Kelly would say it from Arizona or Gene Shaheen would have been forced to say it in New Hampshire or John Tester would have said it from the Pacific Northwest that. There were already five senators saying they weren't going to kill the filibuster so that he could make sure that people got water on a on a line to vote when the average time for waiting to vote in 2020 was three minutes. Do you really think that they'll behave as though this has been dealt a, quote, fatal blow? Because that would require a set of rational responses that you would make, which would include moving on with your life. And I really highly doubt that everybody's going to behave as though this has been dealt a fatal blow because they've talked themselves into this position where they need some sort of sweeping legislative win in order to assume that this presidency and this Congress constitute a victory for their party, Uh, which is in part why when Build Back Better died in the middle of summer, late summer, it was still kept on life support for the better part of the year. Oh, it's Uh, it's still on life support. Oh, they have really, still they says the he's going to bring it to a right, vote. Well, there you go. So no one's going to behave as though this thing has been dealt a fatal blow. They can't allow themselves to acknowledge what that would force them to do. So fine. So where what what world are we living in? That that's the point. <laughs> Say they're going to be in the White House for another three years. They have failed at everything except two bipartisan bills. Right. The COVID emergency bill. No, (laughs) it is. It is. But they've embraced the idea that what they've achieved is nothing. And what they want to achieve that they can't achieve is everything. That's their rhetoric. It's not it's not the rhetoric of the right that says if you don't get these voting rights bills, the country is finished. Well, guess what? You're not getting the voting rights bills. And then you're the president of the country. You're not the you're not. You say. Uh, our voting laws are unjust and unfair. And then you can't explain how you got 83 million votes. How did you get 83 million votes in a country in which the right to vote is being so circumscribed that, you know, the rightful winner 
of the governorship of Georgia, you know, lost in 2018. I mean, the logic of it makes no sense. These guys are, this is a, first of all, it's a logistical, they are political embarrassment. Like I would be just as I was, um, you know, feeling myself as part of the conservative movement, somehow attached to Trump and embarrassed by Trump's behavior. If I were a liberal or I were a Democrat right now, my sense of my embarrassment and having any connection to this White House and these people, when your general belief is, you know, we're smarter than they are. They're all a bunch of Yahoo idiots who, you know, drool and, you know, then make out with their guns and, 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 you know, drink and shoot each other in hunting accidents. And we're the technocratic elite. We know what we're doing. And like, geez, like, oh my God, Biden on Tuesday said, we're going to pass a voting rights bill by the weekend. Not only, not only did they say this is not going to happen, Mansion and Cinema speaking for others, but they couldn't even do it because there's a senator out with COVID. Brian Schatz of Hawaii has COVID, is not in the chamber, and you, there's no remote voting in the Senate. So that was another Schumer promise. We're going to get this voted on before Martin Luther King's birthday because you want to stand with Martin Luther King instead of standing with George Wallace. Like, what are you making promises like that for? Who does that? Stupid people do that. Incompetent people do that. People that you can't believe in or trust or think are you know good for your fruits fine with me i don't like them i don't like their policies i'm thrilled they're failing i'm thrilled they're failing but what about the people who want them to succeed what are they gonna say what are they gonna say I don't know. jim meggs thank you so much for joining us again go to uh as i say the simplest thing to do go to google type in terry teach out commentary Spend the day, spend the weekend, uh, you know, luxuriating in Terry's um, uh, wisdom and common sense and uh, uh, capaciousness of spirit, heart and taste. Um, we will miss him. Uh, I hope uh, I hope uh, we have uh, done him uh, a little bit of justice today. Uh, and uh, and uh, there really isn't much more. Um, that we can add to that. So for Abe, Noah, and Christine of John Pot Horitz, keep the camel burning.